Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. Congratulations. You have reached the universe's finest podcast for music history, written in blood. We're going to start today's episode off with a little bit of trivia. Alright, and I'm going to go first. I've got the audio round, and uh, it's just your simple SAT song, artist, theme. And I've got a bunch of them today. There, I've got seven of them today, so get ready. It's going to be a bloodbath. <laughs> Alright, here we go. Track one. The monkey in the basement. Where did the monkey come from? Where did the monkey come from? Where did the monkey come from? Track two. Track three. Track four. Track five. So those seven songs are connected by a theme. We're going to uh, play them again at the end, and we'll uh, give you the answer. So stand by for that. Joe, do you have any idea yet? I've got a few of the songs. I've got a few of the artists. Uh, I don't have an idea on theme. Better get your shit together. Yes, as usual. <laughs> better get my shit together. Once our podcast starts getting our shit together, we're really going really gonna to take off. I have the non-audio trivia around tonight, and what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to give you a celebrity okay, and a synopsis, and I'd like to for you to tell me what comic book they appeared in. Ooh, okay. Okay. All right. So number one, Muhammad Ali faces this superhero in a standard Queensbury Rules boxing <laughs> match. The bout ends with Ali knocking out the opponent. As it turns out... It was all an elaborate ploy to save the world from an alien invasion. Both fighters share the title of greatest champion in the world. I think that was the Watchmen. It was Superman. <laughs> I was joking. I actually knew that one. That's pretty famous. You did? Yeah. Okay, number two. After killing most of Eminem's entourage, the star of this comic is hired to protect the famous rapper. At first, they get along like oil and water. But eventually, they put their differences aside and work together to triumph over the real villain. That is the Punisher. Good job. Number three, and this is my favorite. Orson Welles accidentally launches himself <laughs> to Mars after stepping off the set of his new film, Black Magic. He's then forced into becoming the Minister of Propaganda for Martler, the Martian dictator, who has plans on invading and ruling Earth. 
Wells manages to transmit a warning message to Earth, which nobody believes thanks to his last hoax <laughs> for the world. One crime fighter trusts the chubby sledder and saves him just in the nick of time. That's a really good plot. Really well thought out. Meta, you might even say. Um, <laughs> oh, it'd have to be somebody who could go into space. I, I'm going to say Superman again. It is. All right. That was, I really like that storyline. You'd, you'd have to be as popular as Superman to uh, <laughs> convince Orson Welles to, to squeeze into your comic book. And only Superman would trust that he's telling the truth this time. Yes, yes. Is he crying Martian again? <laughs> Number four. David Letterman has this superhero team on as guests of The Late Show, and during the interview, the Meccano Marauder attacks and causes all kinds of havoc. Letterman plays off the attack as a bit and ends up beating the villain with a giant prop doorknob. Oh, superhero team. Let's go, Letterman era. Let's go ahead and say the X-Men? The Avengers. Oh, okay. All right. All right, this next one is really a fun one, too. Spoonbender... Uri Geller came to the aid of the Hero of Hell's Kitchen by using his metal-bending psychic abilities to bend jail bars. The two captured Geller's nemesis, Mindwave, who Geller's been battling all over the world. Sounds like some real telekinetic uh, mumbo-jumbo in there. The Hell's Kitchen that is um, Daredevil, right? That was the hint that I threw in there, yep. Sounds like a good one, though. All right, last one, number six. Brick Springhorn and his 10th Avenue band make an appearance in this comic (laughs) when the villains steal the electric power from the venue and the kinetic energy produced by the audiences clapping and cheering. When the power goes out, the heroes come to save the day, and the boss turns himself into a jeep and rolls out to the next show. (laughs) Tell me that's some sort of Transformers thing. It is. That's why, yeah, there was the hint at the end. Oh, my gosh. What does the um, Transformer Bruce Springsteen look like? He looks like Bruce Springsteen, but they, I guess maybe they didn't get his approval because he's called Brick Springhorn. (laughs) (laughs) And the 10th (laughs) Avenue band. (laughs) Just a couple streets over, things things go downhill quick. (laughs) But I love his album, Wyoming. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's all I have. Fantastic. Good job. Good stuff. I think you've got all but one, right? I think so, yeah. All right. I think it's time for the turntable talk. Am I right? Yeah, you're right. Everybody is talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. Suspended from the ceiling, an inverted John Lennon looked a little like the hanged man tarot card. His marijuana pink eyes languidly swayed back and forth behind his ring-shaped spectacles. George and Ringo stood idly by, hands in pockets. Until finally, the recording engineer, Jeff Emmerich, started positioning a microphone near Lennon's face. The task proved more difficult than the usual setup as he pendulumed back and forth. Ringo offered some misplaced assistance. Want us to give you a little push there, John? 
George quickly chastises the alleged drummer and tells him to let Emmerich finish his adjustments while John reveals his master plan, a physical recreation of the sweeping vocals on Tomorrow Never Knows, an homage to Tibetan monks chanting over the mountain. In his drug-addled mind, Lennon can already hear the sonorous phasing of his vocals as he continually rotates 360 degrees. Harrison softly reminds him that George Martin was able to induce the same effect with sending his voice through a rotating Leslie Speaker cabinet. John acknowledged its effectiveness, but it didn't quite satiate his need to find that perfect Dalai Lama vocals. That idea, he explained, just stayed in me head. With Emmerich's setup complete, he gives a reluctant green light to the stone singer, saying, Let's try it out, why not? At that very moment, an enraged and exasperated Paul bursts through the studio doors. His brow furrows as he yells, Why not? Because you're not a goddamn trampeze artist, John. John dangles as the rope twists him slightly away from his irate songwriting partner. Friend might be too strong a word at this point. Wait, Paul, let me try. Paul looks incredulous. Try what? This is nonsense again. George and Ringo look away as if they're pretending to watch TV while their parents screamed at each other in the next room. This wasn't the first time. Ringo tried to whistle a tune in vain. He couldn't keep the beat. John relents and allows his bandmates to help untie him and softly ease him back right side up. As Lennon rises from the ground, he asks Paul why he even cares about what he does in here. McCartney, still aloof from his group, berates him for wasting time when they should be writing songs and getting ready for the follow-up to Revolver. Don't be so paranoid, Lennon pleads, and don't preach about wasting time when you spend hours on a single chord change. McCartney stares back daggers, as if a knife was thrust into his gut and he had one last chance for revenge. He screams, John, we're a band, not a circus. Within weeks of this altercation, Paul McCartney would be found dead, leaving behind only a fiery Rolls Royce and an assortment of strange questions. Lennon, overcome with grief, dove headlong into the mystery behind this not-as-it-seems situation. Nothing else mattered, not the Beatles, not the songs, not even Yoko. His obsession would nearly break him, and nearly broke the Beatles, if it weren't for an unbelievably convincing doppelganger a perfectly orchestrated cover-up, and a band that made an impossible choice. That didn't happen. Probably. This faux-legendary Beatles moment was a scene from the graphic novel Paul is Dead by Paolo Baron and Ernest Carbonetti. The book is a trippy artistic rendition which mixes facts, apocrypha, conspiracies, and fantasy into an enthralling and beautiful version of rock and roll's most notorious lore about its most studied band. Lennon definitely wanted to try the vampire bat-style singing, though it never came this close to fruition. And the reality of the whole dead Paul thing, that secret was lost to time along with Mal Evans' trunk. Thanks, Nilsson. <laughs> Throughout history, we've created legends and myths out of folk heroes. We've even turned multiple people into singular heroes. King Arthur, Robin Hood, Stagger Lee. Who will we look back on from this age of celebrity to locate timeless characters worthy of folktale embellishment? The Beatles? 
Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash. Sure, they didn't locate the Holy Grail or steal from the rich and give to the poor, but maybe their stories are exactly what this era needs. They preside over our collective consciousness as giants, more than mortal men. But to achieve this demigod status, it takes more than recording a few popular tunes. Public personas are carved into their graven images, fans transformed into acolytes willing to perpetuate the myths. Recently, the graphic novel has become a go-to medium to reconstruct the history of popular music. Illustrated storytelling is the perfect vessel for these moments, as it can easily enrich or fabricate the status of musicians. Some of the work acts to illuminate lesser-known aspects of rock and roll, while others cement visual manifestations of the most prevailing stories. Either way, the graphic novel works to establish and propagate the mythos of its central character. Much like animation is a common tool in rock documentaries to bring to life uncaptured moments, graphic novels take this ability to recreate to a deeper and more effectual level. In this episode, we will look at how graphic novels are pushing the boundaries of pop music history, bringing new perspectives and fans, where life imitating art is just as possible as art imitating life. How, like the ink pages themselves, the books color their stories to accentuate their ideas and themes. Lighter, darker, more intense, more fanciful, more realistic, more fantastical. Entire biographies or genres are carefully condensed into imaginative visions. Adaptations that leave lasting impressions that are not necessarily bound by what is real. So move back into your mother's basement, fire up the Batmobile, and bring out that old shoebox of Zippy the Pinhead comics. In this episode, we explore the symbiotic relationship between music history myth-building and graphic novels. Comic books and rock and roll have surprisingly similar trajectories. Both media started out as a dismissed expression of youthful rebellion that emphasized enthusiasm and spectacle over substance and perspective. Both centered on larger-than-life iconic figureheads who seemed to have preternatural control over their audiences. They both find their ways into the hearts and minds of creative, passionate, and often misunderstood kids who are drawn to collecting the relics of their fascination. And most interesting, both had encroached from the outskirts of mainstream culture to gain critical relevance and mass appeal to being primary driving forces of pop culture today. The Avengers. Heard of it, motherfucker? (laughs) The development meant a broader sense of its own significance and authority. From 45s to full-length double-concept records. From 5-cent single-issue floppies to fully-colored omnibus hardcover collector editions. And as these two means of creative expression rose to the top, they intermingled and exploited their commonalities. A comorbidity of nerddom. Musicians would create music alluding to or about their favorite superheroes, while comic book writers and artists would integrate musical motifs and characters into their work. 
the bi-directional influence was strong, and you have to look no further than the king. Elvis is one of the most infamous panopictographists. The young Elvis would consume his favorite comic books as exuberantly as the old Elvis would consume quaaludes and fried peanut butter and banana sandwiches. In particular, Presley adored Captain Marvel Jr. When he wasn't busy appropriating black music, Elvis was fond of appropriating the fashion sense of his boyhood fictional hero. Though the accepted belief is that Elvis styled his legendary quaff after Tony Curtis, it seems that the blowed-back pompadour with the greasy curly cue on the forehead owes an equal debt to Shazam. There are also noted similarities in the TCB Lightning logo and his jumpsuit half-capes. Elvis's copy of a 1947 Captain Marvel Jr. number 51 is still displayed at Graceland. Incidentally, the upside right John Lennon was probably a fan too, as he named checks the zapping superhero in Don Jr.'s favorite exotic hunt fetish song, Bungalow Bill. Captain Marvel Jr. returned the admiration when it was revealed in the Teen Titans comic that he was a huge Elvis fan, calling him the greatest modern-day philosopher. The first mention of Elvis goes much further back to 1957, when Jughead was the world's worst Elvis imitator, singing All Shook Down to Swooning Girls. The icon of rock and roll would make his stamp on the comic world appearing in countless ways in all sorts of different iterations. I especially enjoy evil Elvis fighting some superhero named Starman, who apparently is not David Bowie. Perhaps the earliest instance of a rock star actually making an appearance in a comic occurred in 1959 when Pat Boone foolishly sang with Lois Lane in front of Superman in a comic that was called Superman's Girlfriend. The comic was a little bit of Superman-splaining. <laughs> Forty years before he single-handedly made metal music jump the shark while wearing a leather vest and studded bracelets, Pat Boone drew the ire of Kal-El by writing a song about the hero revealing a few too many of the Kryptonian secrets while simultaneously making eyes with Clark Kent's special lady. I can only assume the big Boy Scout in blue gave him the old ice breath, freezing Boone's career and his flaming hot libido. Boone also had his own comic book series, lasting only five issues. Apparently teens weren't too interested in reading a conservative crooner using his gospel-laced self-help powers to save them from the treacherous arch-villains of Communista, the Sinful Masturbator, and, the worst of all, Lefty Libtard, the Reckless Abortionist. As the 60s hit, a new age of comic books and music was thrown into the counterculture and social upheaval blender. Comics started to find their way into music stores and head shops. Accordingly, rock stars would start popping into comics all the time, especially the Beatles and the Monkees. The results were often hilarious, as in Batman and Robin looking befuddled trying to figure out which beetle was dead, and Superman and Jimmy Olsen doing the Krypton Crawl, which was a dance that was bouncier than the Beatles and more electrifying than Elvis. The culmination would be, of course, Don Kirshner using the cartoon band The Archies to score a 1969 number one hit, Sugar Sugar, mostly as a big fuck you to the monkeys. Sugar. Oh, honey, honey. You are my candy girl. 
I don't know if you thought this at all, but that all sort of sounds like those old Abbott and Costello movies. Not like there are new ones, but the Abbott and Costello <laughs> movies where they would have like Lon Chaney and Bella Lugosi kind of appear in their movies or celebrities of the day. And it's these forced cameos to just that are clearly just kind of thrusting pop culture into stories that make no sense why they should be together at all. Yeah, they have the same manager. Yeah, so much fun, though. I love that stuff. Underground comics became much more prevalent in the 60s as well and quickly interacted with popular music. Most memorably in R. Crumb's brilliant and problematic and heinously nippled cover to Big Brother and the Holding Company's Cheap Thrills, which, according to legend, was created at the cost of Mr. Crumb being able to fondle Janis Joplin. Creepy dude. The 1970s brought another wave of rock star and comic book integration. The bands now were much more aware of making themselves into comic book-like characters and building their own mythology with glam rock, punk, and metal rising as popular trends. Of course, Kiss, go figure, was the first to board this trashy art train and in 1977 would make a guest spot in a Howard the Duck issue. And they had to beg for that. <laughs> You would think the inexplicable nature of the Alien Duck superhero comic would preclude the inclusion of the inexplicably popular Masquerade band, but in the late 70s, I'm sure it all made sense. Kiss in that same year went on to have their very own comic book called a Marvel Comics Super Special, Kiss. As a promotional gimmick, the band had syringes full of their own blood drawn and mixed with ink that was used to color the issue which makes that comic especially expensive on the secondary market and the only comic book that can transmit gonorrhea to its readers. There are pictures of them getting their blood drawn, which are incredible, and we will definitely post on our website. They, I'm, I'm, I'm certain when they had their blood drawn, they were using Kiss brand syringes. I wonder if Peter Chris fainted. <laughs> <laughs> Kiss was just the tip of the iceberg, as metal would fully delve into the comic world. Honestly, it wasn't much of a stretch, as the metalhead subgenre had long been in love with the sci-fi and fantasy art and imagery, and these dark nerds just needed a push to the grittier aspect of comics. Eventually, Guar, Iron Maiden, Alice Cooper, Cannibal Corpse, and Rob Zombie would all grace eponymous issues. Danzig would even start his own publishing imprint of adult-oriented material called Verotic. While he would allow the world to see the ungodly atrocities ravaging his mind, like running out of kitty litter. Hip-hop also has a hugely important bond with comic books that still resounds today. As writer Kieran Byatt lays it out, lyrical references, artist stage names, album artwork, soundtrack curation... Rap and comics now share an elemental blood force, which celebrate trauma giving birth to triumph. On the genre's first bona fide hit, Rapper's Delight, Big Hank is spinning rhymes denigrating Superman. Hey, 
but he looks like a sucker in a blue and red suit. I said, you need a man who's got finesse and his whole name across his chest. He may be able to fly all through the night, but can he rock a party till the early light? He can't satisfy you with his little worm, but I can bust you out with my super sperm. I go do it. I go do it. And then there's Rapping Max Robot, the 1986 brainchild of Bronx graffiti artist Eric Orr who was influential on integrating street art into the styles of MCs, DJs, and B-Boys. More recently, Run-DMC's Daryl McDaniels started a comic book publishing house called DMC, inventively initialed for Daryl Makes Comics. This connection would also lead to one of the most important musical history graphic novels, which we'll discuss in depth in just a moment. In 1989, the underground publisher Revolutionary Comics started issuing rock and roll comics, unauthorized biographies of some of the world's most famous and most notorious stars. Publisher Todd Lawrence saw the popularity of a one-shot parody comic about Bruce Springsteen called Hey Boss, and hired the artist to do a similar story about Guns N' Roses for his company. A small run was put out, but was met with a cease-and-desist order from Axel Slash and their harem of lawyers. The controversy warranted an article in Rolling Stone, which in turn made all the kids run out to get a copy while they still could. The success started a four-year run of putting out one-off adult-themed musical biographies on a huge range of artists, including Metallica, Motley Crue, New Kids on the Block, Public Enemy, Kate Bush, R.E.M., ZZ Top, and others. Constantly embroiled in legal issues, the series didn't survive long, but was wildly popular for an independent publisher. In the 90s and aughts, the walls between subcultures continued to topple, and soon you'd see the Ramones rocking out with the Archies, or Eminem and Punisher gunning down baddies side by side. Hell, even Billy Ray Cyrus and his achy breaky heart had a Marvel comic featuring his glorious time-traveling mullet, fighting off medieval monsters. Fantagraphics and Love and Rockets would become havens for indie comics and indie bands to coexist together. And a large handful of rock stars have gotten into the business of writing comics, notably Lowe's Zach Sally, the Dandy Warhol's Courtney Taylor Taylor Taylor, Dresden Dolls' Amanda Taylor Taylor, Wu-Tang's Ghost-Faced Killa Taylor Taylor, Rage Against the Machines' Tom Morello Taylor Taylor Taylor, <laughs> And Holes, Courtney Love, Taylor, Taylor. That would make for the shittiest version of Do They Know It's Christmas ever. And most of them absolutely do not know when it's Christmas. But it is the lead singer from My Chemical Romance, Gerald Way, Taylor, who has, by a long shot, had the most success with his series of unfortunate events for emo heroes, the Umbrella Academy. It's apparently quite popular, but in a it's a band I don't listen to, making a comic I don't read into a show that I don't watch kind of a way. But all the integration of comics and music and the bi-directional influence each have on each other often remains superficial, if not just straight gimmicky. The rise of graphic novels has provided a deeper and richer palette for musical comics. The stories were less reliant on cameo appearances or marketing snapshots of the rockers, 
but focused rather on their persona, their image, their message, their music, and their reality. In the late 70s, Will Eisner published an illustrated story cycle about a Jewish community living in a New York City tenement. This book, A Contract with God, is generally considered responsible for the rising popularity of the term graphic novel, meaning a longer-length standalone book done in a comic style with a loftier literary connotation. In general, there's quite a bit of controversy on the term itself and its distinction from comics. Some see the term as adding little value beyond a marketing ploy meant to sell collected hardbound comics in bookstores as something more pretentious and expensive than they should be. Others see it as a natural progression of the critical respect of their art form. Either way, the comic medium was evolving, showing increasing levels of creative thresholds, complex story crafting, and thematic congruence. A spotlight was thrust upon graphic novels and people started paying more attention. The first prominent musical graphic novel was a dark and twisted view of the fascinating and troubled jazz singer Billie Holiday by Munez and Sampoio. Released in 1991, the book used black and white block prints as a vehicle for the contrasting fragments of memories that make up the book. Unlike many comics before them, the novel didn't shy away from the bleakest aspects of her life. The drugs, the racism, the police brutality, the fractured love life, the sexual assaults, the humiliations that she suffered. Realistically portrayed to a disturbing effect, they are a necessary backdrop in this tragic comic to show the redemption and power that she had found in her voice. This book was groundbreaking in showing that a newer, rawer form of storytelling was possible in this medium. No longer were the Fab Four hanging out with the Fantastic Four, or Kiss lending haymakers on zombies, cut it. A new wave of thought-provoking art would shape how musical history was retold. Blue moon, you saw me standing alone Without a dream in my heart In this age of personal life oversaturation, it's easy to see why folk heroes are going extinct. Much of the allure of the folk hero lies in their obscure and inscrutable lives. The more we know about someone, the less heroic they'll be. Myths and legends probably won't be based on someone's favorite emoticons or which filter they use most effectively. In this era, possibly unlike any in the past, Myths and legends can be shaped with an eye toward how one will be perceived in the future. But for that to happen, you need to hit the scene with a reputation, and from there you need to control as much of your story as possible. Nick Cave is a very good example of how a musical folk hero can be created and can grow beyond expectations. In Reinhardt Kleist's graphic novel about Nick Cave, titled Mercy on Me, Kleist builds upon the foundations created by Cave and his fans of this dark, menacing, drug-addled genius. He harvests the most outrageous traits that make Cave's life seem fictitious. The art is all sharp corners of few colors featuring a gangly star haunted by his own violent creations and surrounding himself with drugs, books, and guns. If your first experience in learning about Nick Cave is through this comic, you may well think he's the culmination of everything that makes rock and roll dangerous. Cave, of course, endorses this book because he has a keen eye on what helps to maintain his legacy above and beyond some of the best songwriting ever. 
His character exudes cool and drips threat. He's clearly softened through the years, but his image has been controlled and shaped by Nick Cave. He has become something completely other than himself. We don't know what he's really like. We don't care. He gives us the Nick Cave persona we want, and that's how legends last. I am tall and I am thin Of an enviable height and I've been known to be quite handsome In a certain angle and a certain light Kleist also wrote and illustrated a graphic novel about Johnny Cash called I See a Darkness, a few years before the Nick Cave book. In this, he also focuses on what we want Cash to be. Troubled, brooding, raging, and unstoppable. Nothing that is lovable or charming about the real Johnny Cash makes its way into this book. This isn't about that. This is about a mythical figure who shadowed through the 20th century on a destined course. His legend was created in the 50s, and he didn't need to do much to build upon it, beyond being himself. He was frightening, and had a voice like no other. He sang songs about unforgivable characters killing, robbing, and dying. The myth of Johnny Cash cannot be subverted. It will forever be the man in black. And this graphic novel proves why this character will stand the test of time as a folk hero. But I'll try to carry off a little darkness on my back Till things are brighter, I'm the man in black Graphic novels are perfect for those musicians who've been able to master how fans access them and how to alter their story before it grows dull. David Bowie was a living comic book and there's more than one graphic novel about him. The beauty of Bowie as a comic book character is that he wanted you to see him as that for most of his career. He played different characters all the time, and many of them were basically illustrated with the brightest wigs, the most dramatic makeup, and the flashiest outfits. Comic book artist and writer Michael Allred released a Bowie graphic novel earlier this year called Stardust, Guns, and Moon Age Daydreams. Allred uses the comic template to create a biography about Bowie and about Ziggy Stardust, and how the two wrestled for control. Because Bowie created actual characters, not just a single character named David Bowie, myths and legends about them can be endless. As mentioned, graphic novel biographies don't have to be accurate. They just need to be accurate enough to help make the main character recognizable and bigger than life. Maybe bigger than that. Moving on from musicians whose vibrancy demanded fictitious illustrated retellings of their stories, to a band whose fan base believed them to be worthy regardless of reality. The Beatles lived beyond their fantastical means, and yet their fans want more. They accomplished more than their wildest dreams, though not quite as much as people seem to think. The Beatles are basically the opposite of Bowie and Cave, who cleverly created caricatures and characters which served to both protect themselves and provide their fans with a star that blurs the line between fantasy and reality. That wasn't ever an option for the Beatles. 
they were overexposed from the get-go and seemed to thrive on it until it was too late to turn back. They attempted the fantastical reimaginings of themselves with Yellow Submarine and Sergeant Pepper. There were clearly times when they wanted personal freedom from fans' expectations and artistic freedom for themselves, but it was not an option. This is the basis for Paul is Dead. It's a fiction that stems from a believable premise. Paul is sick of being so famous he can't escape it and wants to just quietly make music and live without any spotlights. So he fakes his death. The artwork is amazing. The opposite of the soft cherubic submarine beetles, these are lanky, sharp renderings that look much more human and psychedelic. This idea is maybe the best way to present a story about the Beatles. They'd reached a point where they were larger than mere myths, but their personalities couldn't be pulled out and kept separate. Faking a death might have been their best option. And it's probably why there were so many Elvis sightings, too, with him having suffered at the hands of his own image for so many years. The best Beatles graphic novels aren't about the smart-alecky Liverpudlians, but use them as the universe the stories live within. Astrid Kirchner, Stu Sutcliffe, and Brian Epstein were meshed in a world that wouldn't allow them to be anything beyond extras in their own lives. A mop-top Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And Guildenstern's girlfriend. And it's the act of pulling these background characters to the forefront that makes two graphic novels shine above all the other Beatles-centric comics. Babies in Black by Arnie Belstorff, about Kersher and Sutcliffe, and The Fifth Beatle by Vivek Towery, about Brian Epstein, work really well together to capture two chapters about being in the Beatlesphere. The former focuses on the friendship between Sutcliffe and Lennon, and the romance between Kersher and Sutcliffe. It takes place during the early 60s when the Beatles were playing in Hamburg a lot. The illustrations are rather stark, as is Sutcliffe's story. There are no colors other than black and white. It's fitting that the other graphic novel, The Fifth Beatle, picks up around the time Babies in Black ends, and it bursts with colors as the Beatles themselves begin to do. Like Babies in Black, The Fifth Beatle is also a sad tale. It's about Brian Epstein's drive to make the Beatles beyond the biggest band ever. He wants them to be bigger than Elvis, and he wants them to be bigger than the Beatles. The novel spends most of the story on Epstein's pill addiction and his desire to be accepted as a gay man living in an era where that's an actual crime. It's hard to imagine the legend of the Beatles could be expanded in any way. It's already slightly bloated. These two graphic novels find a way to add to stories we thought we already knew. Beatles stories that focus on people not in the Beatles may be the best way to improve upon their story and enhance their myths. The other way to do this is to go all in with fictitious stories about them, a la Paul is Dead. Another legend of the 20th century that might be impossible to build upon is that of Robert Johnson. Johnson might be the most mystifying musician ever. Historians, archivists, and music fans have been looking for the real Robert Johnson for nearly 100 years now. It's hard to imagine a more mystical persona in music. Love in Vain, Robert Johnson, 1911-1938, to written by J.M. DuPont and illustrated by Mezzo, tells his shadowy story, at least what we know of the story, through interviews with peers and family. The book, like Cash's mentioned earlier, focuses on Johnson's darker side. As opposed to Cash, who we all have the ability to know through books, videos, albums, comics, Columbo reruns, Taco Bell commercials, and more, 
Johnson actually might have been this troubled and rough. The story combines fiction and fact as it seems the best graphic novel bios do, and though it doesn't add to Johnson's legend, it does help keep it alive and extends it into a new century. I got to keep moving, I got to keep moving, blood falling down like hail, blood falling down like hail. While the comics we just mentioned focus on singular artists or bands, more broad-based graphic novels have encapsulated lesser-known genres or concepts in an enthralling and concise way. Not as focused on propagating mystique, the following books are just as integral in bringing to light critical pieces of musical history. They provide an entrance to a world that some listeners might feel is too unfamiliar or too enormous to venture through alone. World-building is a concept found in movies, TVs, books, and infomercials. If you ask people what they consider to be their favorite fictional universe that exists without the world as we know it, some might say Game of Thrones, or Lord of the Rings, or Harry Potter, or even Frasier. In comics, almost all of them are universes that are their own. Marvel and DC superheroes, for example. When we started researching for this episode, we found one of the single most impressive universes ever created. The problem is that it's nonfiction. The series is Hip Hop Family Tree by Ed Piscor. Piscor traces the history of hip hop starting at the very beginning, weaving the lives of all the artists together, showing a close knit community of music lovers and entertainers who all started doing some very similar things around the same time. DJs started simply enough by rhyming over a microphone while records play. The technique became very popular at parties and clubs, and kids started getting really good at it, and at finding the perfect beats from old records to rap over. The found beats were used over and over again by other performers, so some would scrape off any information about their records. Record labels started sprouting up, usually from record stores where these kids were hanging out. The competition was fierce and often cruel, as some of the rappers were much better at insults than others. Members of bands would switch into and out of other bands, and all of a sudden it took off. It's worth reading just for the Russell Simmons lisp. Hip Hop Family Tree was originally a webcomic on Boing Boing, but Piscor turned that into a four-volume set of graphic novels going up until 1985. Yart has an R. Crumb influence, and the writing is clever and charming. While other graphic novels' bios stretch the truth and remove significant details and storylines if they don't fit into the novel's theme, Pisker leaves nothing out. Every part is well-researched, and when Pisker does add anything of his own to the story, he marks it as such very clearly. This novel deserves to be on any shelf of music history books. I think out of all the books that we read, this one was probably the most eye-opening and my favorite. Mine too. I, I'm going to get all four volumes. It's really good. And that story of the beginnings of rap 
really reminded me a lot of the beginnings of ska with oh yeah the djs who were kind of coming out of record stores and competing against each other and scraping off labels there's a a lot of similarities with it yeah yeah the scraping off labels to prevent somebody from figuring out what uh, where your beats were coming from is just i mean that's exactly what they were doing with ska also the you know the sound systems are a lot like the the, the parties they would set up, these mobile parties and the, you know, even the competing groups of people, what it would lead to violence and industry even, you know, just outselling and outspending your opponents. I don't think we could recommend it any more highly. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's essential. P. Craig Russell's gorgeous work has breathed life into opera and classical music. His takes on the time-honored movement is faithful to the story, but virtuosic and elevating in the telling. He's released several volumes of opera adaptations, as well as the Eisner-winning Ring of the Nibelung, series which drew heavily upon golden-era science fiction and fantasy art. They allow audiences to breach these highbrow humanities. Russell trods beyond the limitations of pop music with artwork that is decadently lavish. And I can finally get some culture beyond my scratch-and-sniff G.G. Allen comics. <laughs> they never lose their smell, do they? Tunes, a comic book history of rock and roll, is a fun experimental collection of short anecdotes about a subsection of rock's prolific and bizarre artists. The book is edited by Vincent Bruner, who encouraged contributors to draw and write about their personal visions of a wide range of artists. Nick Drake, Sonic Youth, The Stranglers, ACDC... The Pixies, PJ Harvey, Johnny Thunders, LCD Sound System, all sorts. It's an inconsistent but freeform fun approach to rock and roll history, which seems apropos given that rock and roll is mostly an inconsistent but freeform fun style of music. You probably wouldn't think that a couple of law professors are the most apt choice to throw down on some music graphic novels. I do think that. Oh, I'm sorry, you weren't talking to me. Sorry, go ahead. But James Boyle and Jennifer Jenkins made an amazingly unique musical history perspective called Theft, A History of Music. The book posits a time-traveling voyage of a couple of kids trying to understand the complexities of public domain, copyright issues, and intellectual property theft over the course of about 2,000 years. That sounds fun. From Plato getting doughy about musical improvisation to Public Enemy's Bomb Squad's machine gun sampling as impetus for licensing laws. It's sort of a cross between Magic, Treehouse, Bill and Ted, and Law and Order. The amount of information and context certainly could fill a textbook, but a lighthearted retro comic is the perfect way to deliver some heady and boring material. Who doesn't want pictures of Michael Bolton claiming a legal defense of coincidental subconscious copying? And in the spirit of the book, it's available for free download from the Center for the Study of Public Domain. Definitely worth stealing a glance. There have also been a number of graphic novels that are best characterized as revivalist. Comics that are lovingly focused on forgotten artists of bygone eras that aim to bring their music and stories a more modern perspective, and with that, hopefully, a new audience. Think R. Crumb's incredible trading card portraits of heroes of the blues, early jazz greats, and pioneers of country music that he created in the early to mid-1980s, but extended into full-length books. 
One of the artists from Crumb's Jazz Greats set was Bix Beiderbecke, the legendary jazz soloist who had a meteoric rise and even faster fall in the 1920s, is the protagonist in the graphic novel called Bix. The gorgeous book by Scott Chandler is almost entirely wordless, which gives the reader a sense of a silent film, but with Bix's innovative style feeling the dead air on the pages and in our minds. French author Franz Duchazou detailed the quest of John and Alan Lomax to document the near-lost ballads and folk songs for the Library of Congress in the book Lomax, Collector of Folk Songs. The book took painstaking measures to paint accurate representations of the amassing of some of the greatest Americans without hedging on the horrific cultural norms and the worst impulses of the Lomax's procedures. One caveat to note with this is that the author chooses to use visual stereotypes of the era for all the characters in this book, including the stylized blackface, which can make for a jarring and awkward read. Yeah, as I was looking through that one, it was made me uncomfortable. But I think, I don't, I shouldn't presume, but I think he was doing that to kind of one, imitate the style of art from the era, but also to kind of reflect upon Lomax's personal views, as as horrible as they are. So I don't know that for a fact, and I haven't really read into what he was thinking about that. But um, yeah, it's something, it's definitely, if you are interested in Alan Lomax, John and Alan Lomax, it's a really cool read, but I would not recommend it without telling somebody about that aspect of it, because it is something that you kind of have to spend some time reflecting upon. Yeah, if you can approach it as if the worst parts of it are from the view of these characters, the Lomaxes, who were taking advantage of people. We got great music out of it, but they were totally just stealing things from people. Yep, and then once you've done that, go back and read that theft book, and then you can realize like how often <laughs> that happened throughout the last 2,000 years of music. A delightfully pleasant presentation and the use of an anachronistic Little Orphan Annie vernacular hid the sheer amount of information about country music's first family in the book, The Carter Family, Don't Forget the Song. Mimicking the obsessive collector tendencies of Mr. Alvin Pleasant himself, authors David Lasky and Frank Young pack the illustrated scenes with details and minutiae while still presenting a compelling vision of the fundamental importance of the Carters on American roots music. A.P., Sarah, and Maybell are portrayed as approachable, homespun characters with an immense haunting stature, so the book gives a notion of undeserved access and familiarity with these country music luminaries, sort of like playing pogs with the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. And like all good Americana, it reflects on the dual nature of the structures of our society. Home and adventure, poverty and wealth, racism and tolerance, art and money, passion and destruction. The Carters deserve no less. Loving mother, when the world's on fire, don't you want God's bosom? 
The final book that we're classifying as revivalist is about the formative period of the troubadour Woody Guthrie, focusing on the early years when his eyes were opened to the cultural and political world and its influence on his music. Woody Guthrie and the Dust Bowl Ballads contains striking artwork that often appears as woodcuts covered in a dust storm sepia. There's a good deal of world building that puts the reader in that Depression-era desolation that sets the scene for the lonesome folk songs. The political and societal consideration given treatment in the book are sadly resonant today, proving graphic novels like guitars are machines that kill fascism. It won't be long till the fascists are gone. All of their likes are finished and done. We'll throw the dirt into their face and we'll walk away from that lonesome grave singing so long it's been good to know you so long it's been good to know you so long it's been good to know you there's a mighty big war that's got to be won we'll get back together again for the most part straight bios are not what graphic novels should be doing with few exceptions It's nearly impossible to have as much information as a true biography would, but graphic novels as bios can be very successful. The good ones have a specific focus that runs from start to finish. Having the ability to use both writing and illustration to describe people and events is an advantage when used correctly. There are lots of bios about jazz artists, which is a great topic for comics, stories that not enough people know about, and the potential for illustrations to almost burst from the page like Lee Morgan's trumpet burst from the record. There isn't a medium that can hold the energy, and words alone can't do it justice. As Thelonious Monk said, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. But a combination of art and words can come close. Some of the jazz artists who have graphic novels dedicated to their lives and music are Fats Waller, John Coltrane, Charlie Parker, and Thelonious Monk, who might be the best character study for a graphic novel. Monk, by Yusuf Doughty, is a bio, but with a focus on his friendship with Baroness Kathleen Annie Panonica de Koenigswater, or Nika, (laughs) or Nika to her friends. The art in the novel is nearly as frenetic as Monk's playing and dancing. It's a perfect medium, and the story stays very close to the truth. Obviously, there's a lot of missing information from both of their lives, but it still feels wholly complete. There are lists of like the best music graphic novels, and Monk tends to appear on that quite often. Another well-rounded bio, no pun intended, is California Dreamin' by Penelope Bajou about Cass Elliot. Elliot's another spot-on target, as people should never forget how wonderful she was. She had one of the best voices ever in pop music and was funny and charismatic. The story stays close to fact and is a warm reminder that Mama Cass played a pivotal role in rock and roll history. Sweet dreams till sunbeams find you Sweet dreams that Worries far behind you But in your dreams Whatever 
she never, ever gets enough credit for what she did. She is so talented. Occasionally, you just kind of get an artist that you kind of want to champion because you feel that they're so unfairly dismissed, and um, Mama Cass fits that perfectly. And maybe it's because of who she was or how she looked or whatever, but it seems that everybody who actually knew her and who has kind of taken the time to get to know her music is just just in love with, with her. She's just a wonderful, wonderful person, it seems. The Incantations of Daniel Johnston is a spellbinding rendering of the brokenhearted outcast. With a childlike honesty and a folk art brute eye, much like Johnston's own, Ricardo Cavolo and Scott McCallahan paint a raw portrait of the troubled songwriter and the difficult relationship we all have in navigating the murky mythologizing of mental illness. While it's daunting to see personal demons become grotesquely animated, the book's brilliant color palette harkens to the redemptive qualities of the music and the endless optimism of the man. Some figures are so steeped in eccentricity that they constantly demand reinvestigations of their time on Earth. Glenn Gould, the virtuosic but bizarre Canadian pianist, is the subject of the book A Life Out of Tempo by Sandrine Ravel. The child prodigy who completely reinvented interpretations of masters like Bach and Beethoven was a classical music superstar, well known for odd habits like singing while he was playing or only ever playing while sitting in a wood chair constructed by his father. He created alter egos to write hostile reviews of his own performances. He was a hypochondriac who traveled with his own personal pharmacy and would constantly wear heavy, warm clothes even in the summer. That probably smelled great. <laughs> Gould would cancel concerts on a whim or elect to change the tempo to fit his mood. And then at the height of his fame, he pulled a J.D. Salinger. Despite these qualities, his command of the piano is unmatched, and he's become a poster child for the brilliant, misunderstood genius. This book works to emphasize this through artwork that is often sinister and leaves the reader feeling as paranoid as the offbeat artist. His life is a perfect subject for a character study that uses moody and impactful images to create a connection to the unique perceptions of the musician. Joe. Uh-huh. What do you call one Canadian pianist? I don't know. What do you call one Canadian pianist? A loony. <laughs> what do you call uh, two Canadian pianists? I don't know. What do you call two Canadian pianists? A toonie. <laughs> Friends urged Percy Carey, better known as M.F. Grimm, to write down his incredible life story. Vertigo Comics was intrigued and published his autobiography as a graphic novel. The book, Sentences, The Wife of M.F. Grimm, was heralded as an amazing tale of success, failure, and redemption, involving a young MC hustling his way to the top despite 
overwhelming hardships, including paralyzation from an assassination attempt and getting commuted from a life sentence for dealing drugs. Oh, and he was a child star on Sesame Street, making him the only person who can get Big Bird and KRS-One to guest on his albums. I'm writing this letter from Lenox Hill Hospital. I'm so sorry that I missed your funeral. The silhouettes of you are trapped inside my head as I lay in ICU, hanging on, wishing I was dead. Trying to convince someone to pull the plug and let it end. I lost my best friend, plus I'll never walk again. Now that you're gone, it really don't matter. Becoming a star, becoming a superstar. And you know who else has their own graphic novel? Who? German pop maestro Falco, of course. It's in German, but even with pictures, we have no clue what's happening. But there are a lot of wigs and bow ties shimmering with cocaine. And much like the rock stars hopping into comic book arcs, some graphic novels work by simply thrusting well-known musician characters or genres into another realm building a story around a completely fictional fantasy. Sort of the opposite of the Archies. Instead of a fake band going real, it's real bands going fake. The manga serial Me and the Devil Blues by Akira Hiramoto is the flip side of the Robert Johnson story. While the aforementioned Love in Vain works to build up a myth by trying to uncover and illuminate, this work aims to completely deconstruct the legend, creating an entirely new possibility for how the world's greatest blues man came to be. Unburdened by the historical possibilities and minute scraps of information, Johnson is portrayed as a supernatural southern gothic zelig whose journey is far more expansive than a one-night stand with Satan. If you're anything like me, you've spent many sleepless nights wondering about what a Burton Ernie-style cohabitation situation would be like for Glenn Danzig and Henry Rollins. Well, rest easy, because Tom Neely's Henry and Glenn Forever and Ever answers this question to the greatest love story never told between two swole, grumpy, aged punk singers. Part classy slash thick, part romantic satire, all wrapped up in barely holding together black shirts. The boys pump iron together, share vulnerabilities, dote on kittens, and spend time with their Satanist neighbors, John and Daryl total man-eaters. It was best summed up in an L.A. Weekly review that said, an unauthorized work of fantasy, but so are the official personas of Rollins and Danzig. Many acts are just taking it upon themselves to make sure their musical fame intrudes into cartoonish realms. Popular Christian prog metal band Skillet put out a comic book starring themselves journeying across a dystopian wasteland that used to be Tennessee illustrating the dangers of a world that once allowed Christian metal prog to become popular. Even more puzzling is Japanese Tweecore Baby Metal, who also has a graphic novel which features the trio as time-traveling warriors up against the evil forces of the Fox God. For those of us who are a bit more out of touch with these nascent metal genres, there's an upcoming Dio Holy Diver fantasy graphic novel that looks like it could... Tickle my Tolkien tingles. That Skillet album sounds a little bit like that Sleep album, and that is a graphic novel I would love to read. Yeah, you'd have to read it all in one sitting. It would take 17 hours, but yeah, it'd be great. 
Gosh, why hasn't why hasn't Sleep put out a graphic novel? Uh, because they're stoned. A more modern trend led by publisher Z2 Comics is to issue comic soundtracks, sometimes called graphic albums. While the term conjures images of Prince doing the bat dance, this progression of illustrated storytelling involves the integration of the senses to heighten the reader's involvement in the story. Using the relative ease of combining music and reading on tablets, comic book artists are collaborating with musicians to create a full experience of music, art, and words in one comprehensive package. Some are quite stunning pieces of mixed media like the blues noir comic Murder Ballads, soundtracked by Black Key Dan Auerbach and Robert Finley. The book is the tale of a down-on-his-luck producer and his obsessive journey to release an album by two forgotten bluesmen. The book, which is handily divided into a side A and a side B, comes with a download code for the accompanying music or even a vinyl soundtrack for Deluxe Edition. Cosmic Country cosmonaut Sturgill Simpson, who issued his most recent album Sound and Fury with the anime-inspired movie and manga-inspired graphic novel as companion pieces. There's also an upcoming ghost story Beethoven anthology comic called The Final Symphony that looks utterly breathtaking. Z2 is on the cutting edge of a niche that we have been delving into today. Even still, musical spheres are shaping the comic world with an equal amount of ferocity. You can make a case that this goes back to the Archies picking up guitars or Gem and the Holograms finding a fertile, fantastical playground in the nebulous identity roles of glam music. The interplay between music worlds and comic worlds has never been stronger. Scott Pilgrim vs. the World is an indie rock mashup with video game culture and slacker manga, even if it is a flimsily hip distillation of all three of those worlds. Jim Henson's unreleased screenplay turned graphic novel, A Tale of Sand, is shrouded in the dreamlike jazz culture of some alternative history timeline. Phonogram involves an off-putting musical mage whose source of power is Britpop records. After reading that, for years, every time I listened to Suede, I would attempt to shoot lightning bolts from my schlong. The only magic I ever conjured out of that record was superhuman social anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) Where's <laughs> those crickets? Oh. Also, by the same writer and artist, Kiernan Gillen and Jamie McKelvey, is The Wicked and the Divine, which is about some reincarnated gods who swing back down to Earth under the guise of pop stars. Dark Horse's rockumentary satanic panic satire, Damned Ban, is pretty great fun, and it might include the best ever fake band name, Mother Father. There are plenty more instances of comics that use rock star environs to great effect. The mythic musician is a thing of the past. In the current digital age where fans have immediate access to celebrity through all sorts of media, there's less of a wall between the fans' perceptions and the artist's reality. The artist serves some sort of prepackaged reality that is strictly controlled and crafted to exact specifications. This tips the scales towards the ability of the artist to influence their followers. No longer do fans have to fill in the gaps. 
No longer do they use imagination to make the rock star into something that matches their desires. No longer are fans given a voice in the stories told and untold that make the celebrities into icons. So, we tend to look back to find folk heroes of the modern oral tradition. Popular music. Graphic novels are a perfect medium to rejuvenate musician mythos. They paint pictures that are beyond normal, but not beyond believable or conceivable. The shared history of underdog and disrespected media create an entangled growth of pop music and pulp literature. Now, the dominant and respected forms of entertainment each commands respect and pushes cultural boundaries. The vast array of musical characters featured in the books we discussed are much like the books themselves. Sometimes colorful, sometimes bleak, sometimes straightforward, sometimes full of contradictions, and sometimes totally in a world of their own. The reason these stories need to be told again is because no one version can encapsulate who they are to other people. Each represents so much to so many. How fortunate are we to get beautiful glimpses into how other people see the legends we love? I think kind of the X factor for graphic novels is the choices of of the art. It seems like you can really set the table with how you draw your story. Like the Daniel Johnston one was very much like a folk art. Or like the the Carter family kind of had like a an old-timey comic strip feel. It's another element that the graphic novels have that just a regular biography doesn't. And I think because you can read so much and spend so much time looking at one page and, and examining the details, that directly connects to how people listen to a song over and over and pick up different things. And I think it's it works really well in, in concert. So who do you think you'd like to see a graphic novel of? I don't know. I think it would have to be somebody who has a really interesting life. Um, Ilsa Pade that we talked about from the Female Electronic Pioneers, her life was just so crazy and cool. I think a graphic novel about her would be amazing. I think Mort Garson, like I can almost see how the art, you know, the art could kind of mimic his covers, which is that kind of weird pseudoscientific stuff. And I, I think... I don't know much about him and his personal life, but that's all the more reason why I would want a graphic novel on him. Yoko pre-Beatles might actually be really interesting, too. Oh, yeah, totally. There's a lot that people just have no idea about that, that she had already accomplished by that point. If you're talking about just like, like more like the Nick Cave, Robert Johnson, Johnny Cash myth-building type, I think Tom Waits, Lou Reed, even Screaming Jay Hawkins, like, I think they could become even bigger, you know, if they were represented in that form. Tom Waits especially, it seems like there's a lot of stuff you could do with that. I think even Amy Winehouse has had a really short but uh, very interesting, sad life that might make for a great story too. Yeah. If we have any artist out there listening, let us know. We'll, uh, We'll write it if you draw it, or we'll find somebody better than us to write it. There's a bunch of, like, crappy almost made to indoctrinate type graphic novels. I could see like public libraries and school libraries having about more modern pop artists. They call them sometimes tribute or fame. I think there's one called female force. So occasionally you'll see those out there. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with that if that's what a kid wants to read and that's what they, they love to get into music. I mean, I got no problem with that. I'm not 
not here to cast any aspersions, but it's definitely more a mass production type thing than than the stuff that we were talking about today. Are you ready to play some songs? Absolutely. Oh, right. My first song is by uh, Shelley Duvall as Olive Oil, and it is called He Needs Me.
That song, which is one of the finest, sweetest songs ever, is called He Needs Me. It is sung by Shelley Duvall from the movie, 1980 Robert Altman movie Popeye. And uh, she's olive oil, and she's singing about Popeye, who was Robin Williams. And it was written by uh, Mr. Harry Nielsen. And I think Van Dyke Parks did the arrangement on the whole album. So it's a really cool, weird album for a soundtrack. And the song, it's been used quite frequently. It's pretty popular, but it never fails to just be a just an amazing little tune that just finds its way into your heart. I was reading about an interview with Altman when he was talking about collaborating with Nielsen. Nielsen was pretty much on his last legs at that point. He'd put out his, he was putting out his last full album called Flash Harry, which is kind of a comic book name too. And so I guess Robin Williams was really the one who was trying to talk Robert Altman into like letting him be involved. And nobody wanted him. They said he's he's drunk, he's washed up, he's not going to be able to do this. He'll just derail the whole movie production. And then I guess one day Robert Altman basically said that to Robin, all these these things, and then went home and he's like, Jesus, that's what people are saying about me. And so he called Harry Nielsen, and then they put out what I think is one of the best original soundtracks ever. All right, my first song is by a band called The Coolies, and the song is called Cookbook. Never guess I'd make my fortune 
All right, that was The Coolies with the song Cookbook from their 1988 album, The Coolies Present Doug, a rock opera and comic book on DB Records. So this record actually comes with a 12-page comic book, which is pretty funny. <laughs> it's illustrated by Jack Logan, and there may be some people out here who recognize that name. Jack Logan released a couple albums, I think, in the mid to late 90s. Now, the album itself... Doug has nothing in common with their previous album other than the name of the first album they put out was Dig, and this album is called Doug. <laughs> Doug is the story of a skinhead named Doug who kills a drag queen short order cook, steals his recipe book, and becomes a culinary giant when the cookbook becomes a nationwide bestseller. Doug embraces the celebrity lifestyle of stretch limousines and partying. Soon, his guilt drives him to become paranoid, and he's certain that the entire food service industry knows of his crime and is out for revenge. So he decides he will stop eating and subsist solely on crack cocaine and alcohol. Having squandered his fortune on luxuries and drugs, Doug ends up back on the streets in poverty. Classic tale. Boy gets drugs, boy loses drugs, boy gets drugs back. Yeah, the, uh... Telltale Heart with Drugs. Same old story. Yep. It's a really weird song. And the whole song for this one is all kind of bits and pieces musically of Who songs. So it starts with like <laughs> Happy Jack and it ends with Won't Get Fooled Again. But all throughout, it's all music of different Who songs. And every song on the album is pretty much a send up of another band. Their first album, Dig, is all Simon and Garfunkel songs except one, which is Paul Anka's Having My Baby, which fits in perfectly with Simon and Garfunkel's song. <laughs> it's all Paul's. Yep, all Paul's. And my second song tonight is by The Fall, and the song is called How I Wrote Elastic Man.
All right, that was How I Wrote Elastic Man by The Fall, and I have it on a compilation called Rough Trade Singles, which was released in 2018 on Super Viaduct Records. It was originally a single released in 1980, with that as the A-side, and the B-side was called City Hobgoblins. Now, we haven't talked a whole lot about The Fall on this show. I think we're both fans, but it's also... It's hard to be fans if you weren't kind of collecting things while they were releasing them because they have 50 really decent albums. Um, some of those are great albums, yeah. and it's just hard to jump in and know what to get. They're, yeah, they're, they're kind of a frustrating band to like. Certainly a, yep. an impossible band to collect unless you're John Peel. There are a lot of different stories out there about what this song is about. There are people who believe it's about... The comic book artist Jack Cole, who created Plastic Man. Hmm. Or there are also a lot of people who think that the song's narrator is based on Ray Davies' Plastic Man from the 1969 Kink song. It's really hard to know. Marky Smith doesn't really talk about that kind of thing. I think if anybody asks him what a song is like, he'll just insult them for a while. At some point, we're going to talk a lot about the fall, I assume. So I'm just going to leave it at that for now. The last song we're going to play is The Click, and the song is called Superman.
right, that was The Click with Superman, which was a uh, single. It's actually the B-side of a single called Sugar on Sunday. And that was released in 1969 on White Whale Records. There was also a Click album that had it on there, too. The Click was a Texas band from the late 60s, and they got signed to White Whale. White Whale was mostly known for the Turtles, but I think Warren Zevon did some early stuff for them. He might have been a songwriter. Anyways, they signed this band, The Click, and they basically gutted the band except for the singer, and they wrote a lot of the songs. And one of the songs that they had their um, professionals write was Superman, and it was not a song that The Click wanted to issue. They thought it was too bubblegum, but they also had just been signed, so they put it as a B-side to the bigger hit, Sugar on Sunday. So the song was pretty much just forgotten about. And then in 86, uh, a little band called R.E.M. went ahead and put it as a, I think it's a hidden track on Life's Rich Pageant. And it was one of the best songs on that great album. And it got released as a single and a video and got really famous. And that kind of rejuvenated the click's relevance. It's a song about Superman, which fits for this episode. And it's just one of those ubiquitously wonderful songs. All right, the only thing we have left is to settle up on our audio trivia, so I'm going to go ahead and play all those uh, tracks one more time and give them a listen, and you're looking for the artist, the song, and most importantly, what's the theme that holds them all together? Okay, here we go. Track one. The monkey in the basement. Where did the monkey come from? Where did the monkey come from? Where did the monkey come from? Track two. Track three. Track four. Track five. The revolution will not be brought to you by the shape of a war theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen. Bullwinkle and Julia. Track six. Track seven. It's so good that you can get it from my hand. I'm your, I'm your man. Right, Joe. What you got for me? Number one is the Mountain Goats. Yes, it is. And I think. The song is Monkey Song. It is Monkey Song. Very good. Okay. Number two, I don't have it all. You don't know number two? No. Who is it? It is Jimmy Buffett. I was going to guess Jimmy Buffett, and I held off thinking you would never play a Jimmy Buffett song. Oh. So I The song out is called it. Fins. I can't believe you didn't know that song. I hate Jimmy Buffett. I, I, even hating him, I figure, I figure you would have... You know, just heard it around. But Probably. I, that comes back to my theory that if you don't like something, you won't guess it correctly just for the... <laughs> it's your uh, mythologizing of yourself. Okay. Number three, Neutral Milk Hotel. I don't know the name of the song. No. It is not Neutral Milk Hotel. It is The Decemberist. I cannot believe I missed that. And the name of the song is The Tain. 
it's like a huge song cycle about an Irish folktale. It's it's great, great song. Um, I can't believe I missed that. Yeah, I'm I'm a little worried about you. You're not your usual self. Okay, what's number four? Get back on track. Nick Cave with Crow Jane. I threw that Nick Cave there right at the right time. Yeah, thank you. That is right. Nick Cave, Crow Jane. Number five, Gil Scott Heron with The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. That's right. Very good. Good job. Number six, is it Elastica? No, but you're very close. Okay. okay. Who is it's, it? It's a band called Sleeper uh, with the song What Do I Do Now? I don't know if you remember them. Nope. They were more kind of mid to late 90s Britpop. So very close to Elastica. Okay. Number seven. I know the name of the song is I'm Your Man. I just, I think it's television, but I think the song is too short to be television. So television is what I'm going to go with. You're close enough. It was Richard Hell and the Voidoids. So, oh, okay. So okay. pretty much television adjacent. And the name of the song is indeed I'm Your Man. Okay, so we got the Mountain Goats Monkey Song, Jimmy Buffett Fins, Nick Cave Crow Jane, the Decemberist Tane, Gil Scott Heron, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, Sleeper, What Do I Do Now, and Richard Hell and the Voidoids, I'm Your Man. What is the theme? Well, there were a lot of animals in the first few, but then there weren't from there on. You emphasized Heron. (laughs) Did I? Yeah, you really did. I don't know why. That could be a red herring. Is it... Artist-related or song-related? It's artist-related. Okay. It doesn't have anything to do with animals. That was a red herring. I have no idea. These are all artists who have written novels. Pretty popular novels. Oh. Oh, that's great. Good job. John Darnielle's written two really good... Is it two or is it three now? Two novels and a 33 and a third Okay, book. yeah. Wolf and White Man, I really enjoyed. Universal Harvester, I liked okay, but I think I like Wolf and White Van better. Jimmy Buffett writes all sorts of crappy detective pulp novels. Uh, Nick Cave has written at least two. Decemberist, uh, Colin Malloy. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, yeah, Decemberist. So Colin Malloy, the lead singer, wrote... It's a series of children's books. Yes, yes. Kind of like young adult books called Wild, The Wildwood Chronicles. Yep. And then Nick Cave wrote And the Ass All the Angel, which is phenomenal. And Bunny Monroe. Yes. And then Gil Scott Heron wrote a book called The Vulture, a novel called The Vulture. And then Luis Lerner, who is the lead singer of Sleeper, has written several books. And they're spo- I have not read any, but they're supposed to be very good. And then Richard Hell wrote a book called Godlike that is also supposed to be very good, but I haven't read. Ah, very good. Good topic. I, I feel bad for missing some of the easy ones, but it was, that was great. Yeah, I was maybe going to put in like Steve Earle or Leonard Cohen, but I thought that might be too easy. So, Yeah, no, that's a, those those were great. I didn't. I don't know Sleeper, but I don't think that would have really yeah, helped me. I figured maybe I somebody it. else. Sometimes I, I do stuff for... For the Jimmy Buffett and Sleeper fans out there who are listening, Jimmy Buffett, I should have, I should have gotten. Oh, yeah, I think, I think you knew it. I'm going with my my conspiracy theory that you, you just won't guess things you don't like. <laughs> it's like one form of pride fighting another form of pride. <laughs> so, all right, well, we better wrap this thing up because it's getting out of hand. Hey, thank you for listening. 
we really appreciate it. We love doing this, and we just clearly amuse ourselves greatly. But I think the more we recognize people are listening, the more even more enjoyable for us. And we've met many great people, or at least talked to many great people through the podcast. So drop us a line if you want to say hi, or if you have any thoughts or ideas, uh, anything we can we can do. But we love talking to people and talking music. And, and uh, so please feel free to contact us through any of our various social media avenues, which Joe, I hope, will remember to talk about. You can contact us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, email. On Twitter and Instagram, our handle is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. On Facebook, we have a page. And our email address is Podcast at gmail.com. And we have a Spotify yep. thing, too, whatever that is. We have, a, we have a Spotify account as well, so you can find some of the playlists that we've been trying to put together. Um, we're trying to work backwards here to catch up on songs that we can find on Spotify that we have played clips of in the turntable talks for as many shows as we can. I played our Halloween one. It was pretty good. I forgot we did a Halloween one. I think if you like this podcast, you'll probably like the Halloween mix. It's some of the weirder stuff we put together. We want to thank Pantheon, our uh, podcast network. Just a, just a great place to find all sorts of different music podcasts and they they give us a lot of support and they help expose us to more people so yeah check out pantheon if you want if you uh if you're almost done listening to us and you want to hear something else you will probably find another podcast you enjoy on there and as we always talk about towards the end please support entertainers uh musicians artists writers any way you can i know that bandcamp it seems like almost Every Friday or several Fridays, they will give 50% of what you purchase to the artist. It's a really big deal right now, especially. So find record stores online if you can buy from them. If you're not able to go out, if they're not open yet, you want to make sure that they stay in business. It's really hard right now. So do whatever you can to help people make a living. And... We'll put links to a lot of the books that we talked about today on, on our website. And the links may go to a massive website to purchase, but I would say go ahead and see if you can't get a local bookstore to get them for you. They're really great. If you're kind of like us and you like to have lots of music books on your shelves to thumb through whenever, there are plenty of fantastic graphic novels out there. Anyways, we again, we appreciate everybody who's listen listens to us and we will see you next time the end. who doesn't want pictures of michael bolton claiming a legal defense of coincidental subconscious copying joke here it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 